This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Alcohol, part one. There's nothing worse than detoxing. My name is Phoebe, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 6, 2018, so I just celebrated four years sober. But five years ago, it wasn't good. I'd like to backtrack a little bit and just say that this wasn't my first bout at trying to get sober. I got the bug of alcoholism about 28 years old. It hit me very quickly. It was like I woke up one day and I was a full-blown, hardcore alcoholic and I could not control my drinking. And I now know that alcoholism runs deep in my genetics. My father died of alcoholism at the age of 42. So I was 16 when my father died from alcohol. And as a 16-year-old, you cannot comprehend that. You think it's very selfish and you don't understand it. But when I got bit by the bug of alcoholism at 28, I fully understood that it was a disease. And I got it really bad. And it was, you know, hospitals, jails, and institution, the classic thing that you hear. I went through that, and that's when I started going to ERs. But, you know, I got lucky. I pulled it together, and I got sober. And I had some of the best years of my life. My background, I went to UC Davis. I have an art history degree. I started from the ground up. I worked at the Crocker Art Museum for five years. I started the Dress Fiend, which is my... Uh, Instagram, where I promote sustainable fashion and thrifting. I had my own TV show on Good Day Sacramento promoting this. So I had some glorious years. But about six and a half, seven years ago, my mom got diagnosed with lung and brain cancer. And it was really hard watching my mom die in front of my eyes for 10 months. She was so strong, but she dwindled away. And, you know, to be honest, I was really kind of angry at her, too, because the reason she had lung cancer is because she was a smoker. Going back to the addiction part runs heavy on both my mom's side and my dad's side. And now I very much understand that. Didn't as much when I was young. So my mom passed away, and so I'm an orphan. And, you know, I started thinking I could dabble in drugs again because drugs weren't my problem. I just needed something to feel better because I was so depressed. I had PTSD so badly. My mom's death was not pretty. For you, those of you who are physicians, you know what lung cancer and brain cancer could look like. So the things just kept coming back. So I was like, I'm going to take a benzo. I'll feel better. I'm going to take a Vicodin. I'm going to do all this stuff. And I had this really high-profile job at that time but I was being tormented by somebody who worked there and I ended up getting fired a week before Christmas. So it was just a culmination and I thought that's the best time to start drinking again. It wasn't. You know, though I hadn't had a drink in nearly five years at that point, my body knew exactly where it was and that's where I took off. So I had, you know, a very good six, seven month run. And again, leading me back to, I think I had 20 plus ER visits in that very short amount of time. Very scary, I was 51.50, I was 52.50 many times. 
You know, I tell people down, they don't believe me. My blood alcohol level was 0.56. I am 118 pounds. How I didn't die, I don't understand. And the insanity part of the alcoholism is that I would be discharged and I'd go home and I would start drinking again because I didn't want to feel. Welcome back to Impulse. Today's topic is one I've wanted to explore for a long time because it affects so many of the patients I see. Alcohol use disorder and alcohol withdrawal. According to a 2019 NIH report, nearly 15 million people in the U.S. aged 12 and older suffered from alcohol use disorder. But even more devastating, less than 10% of those people received treatment for their disease. You know, Sarah, you definitely see this more on the adult side, but my kids are affected too. Over 400,000 of those 50 million adolescents aged 12 to 17, that just blows my mind. And as I have seen frequently, children are also affected by their parents' alcohol use, with 10% of kids living with a parent or caregiver who has alcohol use disorder. That's insane. Yeah, and we care for these patients all the time in the ED. In fact, alcohol use disorder contributes to almost one in five ED visits. One such patient was Phoebe, whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode. I actually took care of Phoebe in the ED, though she was super sick at the time, and I doubt that she remembers. But we are so grateful to Phoebe for sharing her story of illness and recovery. And you'll hear more from her throughout this podcast. This is the first episode in a two-part series on alcohol use disorder. Joining us are experts Dr. Amy Mullen, emergency medicine physician and chief of the Division of Addiction Medicine at UC Davis, and Dr. Liz Johnson, emergency medicine physician and addiction medicine specialist at UC Davis. So let's start with the basics of acute alcohol withdrawal. What is going on physiologically? So in a nutshell, I mean, alcohol, as we all know, is a depressant of the central nervous system. And it acts mostly on a very specific place in the brain, the GABA-A receptors, a little bit on NMDA receptors. There's some other stuff that may be going on, but primarily GABA-A. And what happens is people with chronic regular alcohol use have down-regulated their GABA-A receptor activities down-regulated their endogenous GABA and are kind of dependent upon alcohol. And so what happens when we remove that activity, the brain chemical homeostasis gets thrown off. And so that's what we see as alcohol withdrawal. Essentially, all that GABA has been shifted out of the brain because of those two things going on. Can we predict who will go into withdrawal or maybe even how severe those symptoms will be given those issues? We have like no perfect science to predict it, but we do have some history and physical exam and vital sign abnormalities that we can use. And actually there's like a score called the PAWSS score, prediction of severe withdrawal in hospitalized patients. And it's like internally and externally validated scoring system to actually predict for people who are hospitalized, um, who's going to go into moderate or severe withdrawal. So that's kind of a validated way that we we do that. That kind of includes things that we've all been trained in emergency medicine to look for. So if you've ever been into severe withdrawal or delirium tremens before, if you've ever had an alcohol withdrawal seizure before, 
How many times have you gone into withdrawal? It also looks at your level of intoxication and your level of withdrawal. So if you're having autonomic instability and your alcohol level is 200, that's definitely going to be something that we would think would be a predictor of you going into severe withdrawal. I think for the most part, emergency physicians are really good at identifying alcohol withdrawal. I mean, this is bread and butter. I use the pause score a lot when I want to admit someone to the hospital who maybe is not in severe withdrawal at this moment, but I know is going to be. And I think it really helps communicate that risk to our inpatient colleagues. 90% of the time, I didn't remember ending up in the ER. I have a very good friend in town who, you know, was relentless at just making sure I'd end up in the ER or neighbors or, you know, I would do something really scary, like leave a pilot light on. I mean, it would just, it got bad, but you come to, it's like this jolt. It's almost like you're electrocuted, right? You come to, where am I? Checking your surroundings. You feel awful because you are now coming off of the alcohol and a little bit of drugs, whatever, and it goes immediately into shame. So that's what I always want people to understand. It's not, you know, oh, God, why can't they quit drinking or quit doing drugs and things like that? It is so many layers as to why kind of we can keep going back out. But shame, that was a common uh, denominator and every time I would end up back in the hospital was this level of shame how did I end up back here again I mean that is it's such a scary thing you know and you feel awful and there's nothing worse than detoxing off of alcohol let's talk about a patient who's experiencing severe acute alcohol withdrawal how might this patient present there's a variety of different ways that they can present, but the most classic teaching would be kind of like I alluded to before, all the signs of autonomic instability. So hypertensive, tachycardic, sweaty. Oftentimes they're vomiting, they're having diarrhea. They have the classic tremors that we're trained to look for in the tongue fasciculations. Um, those would be kind of more of the things that you can see when uh, you walk into the room. The other things that um, oftentimes they're reporting are these pretty vivid visual hallucinations and sometimes auditory, but primarily visual hallucinations. So those are kind of like the classic things that we see in somebody that we would be like a textbook severe alcohol withdrawal patient. Also, remember, severe alcohol withdrawal really starts later. So after withdrawal symptoms begin, you start delirium tremens or DTs about three to five days. So we all have to remember like seizure day is day four. And so people are going to become more severe that longer period travels out. So just to kind of remember there's a delay there. Remind me guys, how do we differentiate between DTs or delirium tremens versus just like alcohol withdrawal? So I think the key difference here is the hallucinations that Liz mentioned. You know, there's the autonomic instability that we see with alcohol withdrawal, the tachycardia, the tremors, but it's really the hallucinations that are the hallmark of DTs. That last time, and luckily that was my last time, I was starting to go into delirium. So I was at home and I knew the jig was up. I needed to stop. So I was trying to, but I started seeing things on the wall. 
I started feeling things. I was like hearing things. I mean, it, it was really bad. And I felt my body, it's just like this weird transition, like something was gonna happen. You know, but the great thing about UC Davis, I knew that those people were invested in me and they did care. And they were not gonna judge me for needing to come back because I needed to be medically detoxed. They actually kept me for three days. So I wouldn't seizure. Okay, so we have all seen these patients in our EDs, and there are myriad different ways to treat them. How do you initially manage this kind of severe patient in the ED? Oh, I love this question because you were right. I mean, as much as we try to standardize this, there's so much controversy, and people do this so differently, which I find really interesting. I personally, when someone acutely comes into the emergency department, do not love protocolized treatment. I think it takes too long. I think what we end up with is just this sort of unfocused neglect because what we really need to do is what we do best, which is rapid stabilization of a life-threatening condition. So for me, my benzo of choice is diazepam. Of course, I'm not monogamous to benzos, but I like to give diazepam every 15 minutes until we get under control. I mean, alcohol, this is where benzos like really shine, right? They act on that GABA-A receptor. And so really it's kind of the perfect drug here, particularly initially is benzos. When you're using that diazepam, you're talking about like 10 milligrams IV Q15 minutes, right? Correct. Yep. That's, you know, and the problem is like a lot of the protocols are you know, someone's reassessed when the nurse has time, maybe Q1 hour, maybe Q4 hours, and we inevitably get behind. You have to think about this like you do an AFib patient. Like I have to be reassessing, remedicating until I get them under control. So yeah, diazepam 10, Q15, that's my go-to. Okay, I'm really deep into the adult waters here. AFib, <laughs> DTs, all this is way outside of my house. Can you remind me, when you're talking about this Q15 minutes benzo, is this for DT patients or just anybody who comes in with an autonomic response and alcohol withdrawal? Yeah, so for me, it's anyone who comes in with signs of severe withdrawal, really that autonomic instability. It's that autonomic instability that becomes life-threatening. So that's the part that I really want to go after, get the patient under control, and then they can go on their protocolized management, benign neglect that we often use to treat alcohol withdrawal. Benign <laughs> neglect. <laughs> The protocols Amy is referring to use scoring systems to quantify alcohol withdrawal severity. One of the most well-established of these is the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment, or CEWA. CEWA uses objective and subjective symptom reports to determine withdrawal severity and guide treatment. There's some debate about CEWA and other protocolized treatment of alcohol withdrawal, which we'll save for another time. But as Amy points out, these treatment protocols are rarely applicable in the ED where patients require acute stabilization and frequent dosing and reassessment. Liz, do you have a different approach or how do you approach these moments? I mean, I definitely agree with Amy. If you are aggressive in treating the persons and stabilizing the person initially, you can save them an ICU stay a lot of the time if you're really able to get on top of their autonomic instability and get them in a good spot then, you know, by the time you're thinking about their disposition, you know, they're no longer 
super hypertensive and tachycardic, their vital signs have normalized and they're going to be more appropriate for a floor level of care. Sometimes, of course, that's not possible. You do your best and they're already at that level of needing ICU care, regardless of what you do, you're just maybe preventing them an intubation at that point. But yes, definitely not using the the CWA protocol and pretty frequent reassessments with benzodiazepines is great. There's also at where we work, there's often a combination of benzodiazepines and phenobarbital. And on the ICU CWA that we use upstairs, they use a combo of both of those. They do that at a lot of different hospitals. Uh, it can get a little bit messy depending on how high of each dose you're doing, just because you are messing with two different half lives and two different kind of mechanisms of action, and the clearance can get a little bit harder to predict. So I think ideally sticking to one is the best, but we do sometimes give a little bit of phenobarbital and Valium. And there's some studies that say that if you're loading them with higher doses of phenobarbital, you're going to have less benzodiazepine needs in the ICU later on. When you're talking about using phenobarbital in these patients, what dosing are you using and how do you give it? So a lot of how you treat certain things, I feel like are cultural to like the place that you're working and kind of like how things have always been done. So there's some protocols um, where you give somebody a 10 milligrams per kilogram bolus if they're a very sick alcohol withdrawal that you think is going to go to the ICU. At Davis, we tend to give it in 130 and 260 aliquots. And you give that IV in these super sick patients? Yes, exactly. I'm going to agree with phenobarb for ICU use. Phenobarb has definitely been shown to decrease ICU length of stay. I think it should be given to every patient going to the ICU. And the reason for this is that, so in the beginning, we kind of talked a little bit about down regulation of the GABA-A receptor. So you can have a patient, a chronic alcoholic, who just no longer has enough places for benzos to bind. So you can have a benzodiazepine-resistant alcohol withdrawal, particularly for someone with, with severe chronic alcohol use. And so phenobarb acts on different pathways, the glutamate pathway, and so it really does help people who can have that benzo resistance. And then we don't see this in the ER, but what our ICU colleagues will say is you can get someone with alcohol withdrawal that we control with benzos, and they kind of cross over into this benzo delirium because they have so many benzos on board, and they really struggle with, okay, where are we in this disease process? And phenobarb prevents that because it helps to decrease how much benzos people get. So for me, if I have someone who's going to the ICU, they're getting loaded on phenobarb. Are there any other meds or treatments that you're starting at that point? Like, what about the old banana bag? I think if you're actually concerned for like Warnicke's, giving somebody IV thiamine is definitely going to be the way to go. We tend to have the oral vitamins in our treatment protocols for both mild and severe alcohol withdrawal. Whether or not that's really helping the patient, I I think we don't exactly know when it's oral just because the bioavailability is very dependent on the actual person's needs and their physiology and all this different types of factors. But there's really not a lot of great evidence specifically for discharging people with alcohol use disorder on vitamins. Um, they've done various different studies on people who are heavy alcohol users, what vitamin deficiencies that they have. And a lot of times it's not the ones that we would think. So. If you really are worried that someone has Warnicke's, then IV thymine, 
I looked at this because I thought, oh, what else could people use? Okay, and this is so great because my favorite drug also works here, which is ketamine. <laughs> Who doesn't love ketamine in the ER? So ketamine acts on that NMDA receptor and that is implicated in alcohol withdrawal. So it has shown some benefit in ICU patients. So I just wanna bring this up there partially because I love ketamine so much as an emergency physician. And here is a wonderful use for some patients who have severe alcohol withdrawal. Just kind of add that little bit of special K in there. Who doesn't want to add that in? So how would you operationalize that, Amy? Like who would you give a little bit of special K to (laughs) and when? This would be your patient's a chronic alcoholic with severe alcohol withdrawal where you really think, okay, I have someone who has benzodiazepine resistance. I've loaded them on phenobarb and I'm really just not getting there. I think if this is like mag to your asthma, this is just a little bit of something there, hit every receptor that could possibly give you benefits for that patient. You've probably already intubated them. And so ketamine would also help you there. And also, Presidex is another adjunct we add for the really sick alcohol withdrawal, super tachycardic, hypertensive. You've done all the stuff that Amy alluded to, and they're still not quite where you want them to be. Okay, I love it. So you have stabilized your patient, given them the meds that they need, given them some fluids, maybe a banana bag or maybe some orals. What labs and tests do you find helpful in these patients? So I actually find the alcohol level useful here because it kind of helps me think about my time course. As we mentioned earlier on, you know, if I have someone who's withdrawing and they have already a high blood alcohol level, this is going nowhere good. So I find it helpful versus someone who's in withdrawal and their alcohol level's really low. I think, okay, so we're 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 deep into it as opposed to we're at the beginning. So this is one of those patients where I actually find that really helpful. What if the patient starts seizing? Like, can my AEDs work in that scenario? So remember, benzodiazepines, phenobarbital, all of these medications we're talking about are also our first-line status epilepticus drugs. And so this is really where you want to go. Like, if you have not loaded someone on phenobarb, now is the time to do it. So that's really going to be your first go-to is going to be benzos, phenobarb, Presidex. These are the medications that are going to be the ones that are going to treat the underlying cause rather than someone who has an organic seizure disorder where you're looking at like Keppra or Dilantin. My other favorite K drug. (laughs) Keppra. Who doesn't love Keppra? So great. I mean, honestly, I have never seen anybody who said, oh, you gave too much Keppra. So (laughs) would I give Keppra here? Why not? I've really literally never encountered someone who said, Amy, why did you give more Keppra? Never. I was going to say in emergency, I feel like these patients, they're always so undifferentiated. And, you know, I'll have somebody who we get that they were alcohol user 30 minutes after they've, you know, had the seizure and we've already given them Keppra and Benzos. And then it's kind of like, well, they got a little extra, the other special K. That's really not a, not a big loss there. So um, I think if you happen to be in the situation where you 100% know this is all alcohol related, then probably the anti-epileptics are not helpful in that situation. But as we know in our career, we're often dealing with a very undifferentiated mess and we're just trying to do the best we can to stabilize them. 
obviously for those intubated patients, they're going to the ICU. But otherwise, how do you decide if someone needs the ICU or might be stable for the floor? I think this is very dependent on the people upstairs. There's certain people that are slam dunk ICU, certain people that are slam dunk floor. But the kind of gray zone, I feel like, is extremely dependent on nursing ratios and people's comfort upstairs. I think a lot of it really depends on the people who are screening and what their comfort is. Obviously, if someone is still persistently hypertensive and tachycardic, despite getting really high doses of benzodiazepines and still looks a little bit tremulous, the vital signs is really what I find the people upstairs are looking for, for their comfort first floor versus ICU. And also their history, if somebody just got discharged from the ICU or they always go to the ICU, that definitely plays into kind of where their disposition is going to be. And I think if they've had an alcohol withdrawal seizure, like if they came in with alcohol withdrawal seizure, you've given them benzos, now their vital signs have normalized, they're looking much more comfortable. Some places they would feel comfortable with that on the floor and some places the fact that they had a witness seizure in the ER would automatically make them ICU. Yeah, remember, DTs develop day three, day five. So as Liz mentioned, it depends on the resource of your floor, of how often you're going to need to redose and reassess your patient, not just now, but tomorrow and the next day. So where do you think this is going? Several times now, you guys have said their past history predicts the future over and over again. And I think that that speaks to the chronicity of this disease process, right? Like that they're going to come back and represent over and over again. What about the patient that is not so severe? How does your management change in somebody who's in those very early phases or mildly symptomatic? How do you decide if that patient needs to be admitted? This is kind of where we like to use the pause, back to the, the pause score. And back again, I feel like we're going to be harping on all the same things to their history. And it also depends on what their resources are at home. So if somebody is unhoused, doesn't have anybody to watch over them, and has a history of an alcohol withdrawal seizure, if they're coming in and they really want to stop drinking and they're only in mild withdrawal, I'm going to be much more inclined to try to admit that patient because I just don't feel like they're going to be able to do any of that withdrawal management safely given their current circumstances. Now, if there's somebody who has a pretty benign history and they're going to go home with their sister and they're pretty mild, I would feel much more comfortable sending that person home. So I think you bring up a good point, Julia, about the chronicity of alcohol, alcohol withdrawal seizures and alcohol withdrawal, and that we're really talking about alcohol use disorder, right? Like that's actually what we're talking about as a patient population that has alcohol use disorder. And I think as emergency physicians, we're really good at that acute piece of, hey, you have DTs or you have alcohol withdrawal. I'm going to admit you to the ICU. I'm going to give you ketamine and phenobarb and all these fun infusions. And that's what we do really well. But we really need to start thinking is my goal should be for that person to stop drinking because I would prefer not to see them next week and prefer not to admit them to the ICU next month again. And so really for every patient, even the ones going to the ICU or the patients going home, my goal for them is to stop drinking because I think a lot of times we just start from a frame of this is a person with chronic alcohol use and that is their destiny and we think about how can I bridge you to get you home to let you start drinking again? And we got to stop there and start thinking, how can we make a difference so that I do not see you next week or so that you actually can 
make a difference in your actual trajectory in your disease process. You know, the person that I'm admitting with diabetic ketoacidosis, I'm also starting to think about, hey, we got to manage diabetes. And so the person that I'm admitting with severe alcohol withdrawal, even if they're going to the ICU, this is someone who we have to manage their alcohol use disorder and incorporating that in day one of their hospital course of like, hey, let's talk about alcohol use, kind of relate where we are today with what happened with that alcohol use disorder so that we can begin the process of treatment and recovery. Yeah. And Amy, I think that's a great segue into our next episode, which is going to be all about the outpatient management of alcohol use disorder, which really does start in the ED and in the inpatient setting. Pulse check. Alcohol is a CNS depressant acting mainly on the GABA-A receptors. Regular alcohol users' brains become dependent on alcohol, making withdrawal dangerous and even fatal. Symptoms of withdrawal are related to autonomic instability, and they can include hypertension, tachycardia, sweating, vomiting, diarrhea, tongue fasciculations, and seizures. Delirium tremens, or DTs, manifests as vivid visual hallucinations. Treatment in the ED should include rapid stabilization with benzodiazepines every 15 minutes until symptoms are controlled. In ICU-level patients, giving phenobarbital IV may lessen the need for benzos and shorten ICU length of stay. Ketamine and Presidex can be used in refractory cases. A patient's symptoms and history can help determine the level of care they will need. The PAUSE score can help predict severe withdrawal in hospitalized patients. Remember that severe, life-threatening withdrawal, including seizures and DTs, occurs around day three to five. We need to look beyond acute withdrawal and treat the chronic disease of alcohol use disorder. I really liked Amy's analogy of the patient with diabetes and DKA. I mean, sure, we can stabilize that acutely ill patient, but we have to start treating the underlying disease. Yeah, and Amy and Liz will be back in part two of the series to talk about how we can start treatment of alcohol use disorder from the ED. If you learned something today, please tell your friends and colleagues. Help us reach more people by subscribing and leaving a review. Thanks to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for being there for millions of patients like Phoebe. And thanks to OM Productions for reducing my own autonomic instability. Now let's hear some more from Phoebe. So I won't name the names of the hospitals that I've been to where I was treated poorly. You know, oh, there she is again. I mean, I could hear people whispering. Oh, you want to go home looking like that? Do you want to, you know, or coming in, not even looking me in the eye. So I was a human. I didn't feel human when I was in the ER because it was as if I was sitting there and people were around me, but they didn't see me. Almost like I was an animal. People were talking above me and acting like I didn't understand their language. Basically, come in, give me an IV, a sheet of paper, and dismiss me. And sometimes this was letting me go at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you know, having to walk home. Why do you think I drank again? And again, the common theme that came up for me was, I am such a burden. I am so shameful. 
I am a horrible person. Look at the way I was just treated. I gotta go drink again because I can't feel this anymore. So, by the grace of the universe, I'd like to think that the universe has my back, and I'd like to think that my mother has my back. She, well, she slapped me a couple times. She said, daughter, get it together. You know, I didn't have any more blood family, but I sure had a great circle of friend family, including people at the UC Davis Hospital. Those people helped save my life. So, you know, slowly but surely, I got it together. I mean, I had some relapses, but I did detox. I did a rehab that finally worked. I did AA, and most importantly too, though, I did therapy because I needed to treat that ism, that thing that had been plaguing me for years. So all of that led me to it, and then July 6th is when I have my sobriety birthday, but it, it was really bad. I mean, I could dress up so beautifully and nobody ever knows, and that's why I tell on myself a lot, because alcoholism and addiction does not discriminate. It could happen to any of us. 